lengthen the reading out a little more from the one you have in your bulletin beginning with verse 1 and I would like to go through verse 13 so that's where I'll be reading the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the son of God as it is written in Isaiah the prophet behold I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord Make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days. Being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Before I again I have some visual aids I'm going to pass out one for each side and then you can maybe exchange it and pass it to the other side it's uh, called the Judean wilderness everybody can take a look and see how bleak it is the pictures are not too good but you get the idea The desert is a wilderness, or wilderness is a location where God has dealt with many of His people. To name a few who spent extended time in the desert, we might think about Adam, let's say, after the fall. Now, as you can see in the Judean desert, I mean, it's mainly rocks. So, so this is not like Saudi Arabia and all those where they have all that sand, no sand dunes. So this is rock desert out there in Judea. And there are other kinds of desert. Uh, So, after the fall, Adam was no longer in paradise. Uh, Things were not like they were. His relationship with God was not like it was. His relationship with his wife was not like it was. Uh, He perhaps was in an emotional desert. Who knows? Uh, Or we could think about Noah all alone with his family on that shoreless ocean. For 150 days, 
an ocean without a shore. No other people. That's what we mean by desert. It's just deserted. I mean, there's nobody there. It's empty. Uh, no other human inhabitants. Or we could mention Moses. Forty years in the desert. Forty year, uh, years leading his people uh, through the desert. Wow, that's a long desert journey. We could mention Elijah, John the Baptist, Jesus, Paul, John on the Isle of Patmos, which was a deserted place. So God teaches and communes with his people many times in the desert. So that's kind of the background of my remarks today on this passage. So the desert is sort of in the background of what I would like to say. So this is the beginning of the gospel and Mark's account. And the desert is the background of this passage. Um, verses 1 through 3 then. In the, be the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. So this is the beginning, and the desert is the background. There's a conflation of two passages from the Old Testament here. One, of The first lines in verse uh, 2 are from Malachi. The last lines are truly are from Isaiah. I understand this may have been a common practice among rabbis of the day as they were quoting Scripture. Maybe just sort of press two or three of them together and quote it to make a point. So this is the way they did it. The attribution here is, is, uh, is to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. I'm going to do a little work here on these, this word desert, and uh, uh, I'm going to use it. I mean, it's not just in vain. So in this Hebrew passage in Isaiah, there are two words for desert. And each of these words could be used to describe either desert, that would be one translation, or it could be a wilderness, either way. It's, it's empty, it's, it's not, not many inhabitants. One Hebrew word for desert that we're going to use later today is midbar. So let's learn a Hebrew word. Can everybody say midbar? Midbar. Desert. Okay. The other Hebrew word is Adabah, which you may have heard before, like the Arabian desert. or They call it the Adabah sometimes. Uh, it could mean that desert plain running down through Moab over east of the Jordan River and on down into the desert of the Negev. Sometimes that's called the Adabah in, in, uh, next to Israel. The main word that I would like to concentrate on later is the word Midbar, which means desert. Verses 4 through 6. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, or the desert, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. So John the Baptist comes out of the desert he comes out of the desert preaching. And he looks like Elijah. 
who spent also time in the desert down in the Negev, south of, way south of Israel down there. Jesus said about John the Baptist, He is the Elijah who was to come, if you can receive it. <clears throat> so, if you don't want to receive it, you don't have to receive it. But Jesus said, if you want to think about the Elijah that's coming, it's John the Baptist. That's the words of our Lord. So many of these prophets, including John the Baptist, come out of the desert with a message. They come out preaching. The word for desert that I would like to play on a little bit here, this midbar, comes from two Hebrew words. The first particle is min, min or men, which means from or out of. And the second word is dabar in Hebrew, which means speech or the place of speech. Isn't that interesting? It's the place of speech. Isn't that interesting? The desert can be translated desert, as we'll see later on. It can also be translated mouth. Can you believe that? The same word is the place of speech, the desert. It's where God speaks to us. Uh, so, uh, the context then will tell us how these words are to be translated. We'll look at that in a second. So John the Baptist preaches repentance and this is indeed a prediction of him from the book of Malachi which Craig has just read. I will read it again. The prophet Malachi in the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to the fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction, King James says, lest I come and strike the land with a curse. I have read that passage in Malachi many, many times, and I must confess I didn't understand it. What does he mean? I mean, I will turn the hearts of fathers to the children, the hearts of the children and fathers. He means this, <clears throat> that repentance, as John the Baptist preached, is also involved with believing the gospel. Uh, so repentance can happen, I think, either before we really believe the gospel, it can happen simultaneously as we believe the gospel, or it can happen afterwards as we believe the gospel and repent. Uh, what does repentance mean? It means seeing yourself as you really are, that uh, you have at least several, shall we say, faults, and that you have done wrong to other people in your life. And we become sorry about that. And I wish I could undo it, but I can't undo it. I can't undo it. So when the gospel comes, repentance comes. And the prophet Malachi says this Elijah, this John the Baptist is going to turn the hearts to the fathers and the, heart, uh, the hearts of the fathers to the children. It's true today. When the gospel comes, or when revival comes, God turns the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. It would be like this. A young man come home from, comes home from university and he says, Dad, a revival has swept through our university and I was caught up in it. And I believe in Christ now. But I have had a bad attitude toward you for many years, Dad. And I am repenting. I want to make things right. I would like for restoration to occur. Or it could be a husband and wife. The husband comes home and says, 
I've been hearing about the gospel all my life, but through a certain number of weird circumstances, I've come to believe in Christ. I have not been a good husband. I'm praying that you would forgive me, and I would like to be a good husband. That is repentance, friends. Now, how can we believe the gospel and not repent? It doesn't make any sense. How can you, how can you maintain a hard heart and believe in Christ? John the Baptist would say it doesn't make any sense. So he came preaching repentance to prepare the way for the gospel, to prepare the way for Christ. So this is the spirit and the power of Elijah as the angel foretold to John's father. This is the Elijah who was to come if we can believe it, if we can receive it. John the Baptist then is like Elijah in other ways. How? Well, he dresses like him. He wears a shirt of camel's hair and a leather belt around his... You can read it in the Old Testament. Ahab asked this guy, well, who was this prophet that said all this stuff? And he said, well, he had this kind of hairy shirt on. He had a leather belt around his waist. The king said, it's, it's Elijah. I know it. Okay, it's Elijah. He is always bothering me. He never gives me a good prophecy. Yeah, he is Elijah. This is the spirit of Elijah. Repentance. And, and indeed, uh, with King Ahab, uh, Elijah uh, preached repentance. Uh, you are the one, and your wife is the one that killed Naboth to steal his vineyard. Uh, you spilled Naboth's blood, but guess what? In the same place that Naboth's blood was spilled, the dogs are going to lick up your blood. He never gave Ahab a nice prophecy. No. This is the Elijah who was to come. He dresses like Elijah. John the Baptist is like Elijah in that he eats strange desert food. John the Baptist ate locust and wild honey. If you can believe, well, some people eat weird stuff, I guess, crickets and stuff, I guess, I don't know. But he, he ate this. Elijah ate meat that was provided for him by birds that came and fed him out in the desert. Like many of them, John learns his theology in the desert or in exile. The Apostle Paul definitely learned his theology in the desert. He said, I didn't learn this from Peter. I didn't learn any of this stuff from the great apostles. God taught this mouth to mouth with me out in the desert while I lived out there. John the Baptist, just like Elijah, preaches repentance. John the Baptist is fearless and he preaches truth to power. Just as Elijah had preached to Ahab, John the Baptist preaches to Herod and says, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And he was putting Herod on the spot, but in a kind of a perverse way, Herod liked to hear good preaching, so he'd bring John the Baptist out and listen to it. And John the Baptist would call him to repent one more time. I'm sure it was the same message every time. He preached truth to power. John the Baptist, like Elijah, has human doubts and weaknesses. Elijah, after the great victory over the prophets of Baal, over 400 of them, it, and Jezebel begins to chase Elijah. Now Elijah begins to feel sorry for himself. And he says, Lord, please take away my life for I'm not better than my father's. Great victory, human weakness. John the Baptist, great preaching, human weakness. John the Baptist sends to Jesus and says, are you really the one that was to come? 
Or shall we look for another one? Have I been preaching right? Or have I been preaching in vain? They're human beings. We're human beings. You know. Do we do everything right? No. Okay, we don't. Verses 7 and 8. <clears throat> And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. But I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John introduces the Messiah and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. John points to Jesus, and he also says he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. His baptism is better than my baptism. So John says, I'm not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. That is, my message cannot compare with his message. The message of John the Baptist, in a certain sense, is inferior to the message of Christ. John the Baptist preached repentance. Christ preached that I'm the Savior and I'll forgive you of your sins. So, fantastic. John the Baptist in effect, says that my overcoming cannot compare with Christ's overcoming. John the Baptist was a desert prophet, but Jesus conquers the devil completely. John the Baptist, no doubt, is, still was worried by temptation, by demons and all kind of stuff that we're worried with. Jesus conquers completely the devil. He overcomes. John the Baptist would say, as he says that I'm not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals, my power cannot compare with his power. Jesus is the power source himself. Even though John was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit without measure. Jesus is the source. John the Baptist, in effect, might say, my baptism is inferior to his baptism, for he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Verses 9 through 11. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So now we have the baptism of Jesus by John in the river Jordan. So it seems that Jesus now is identifying with you and me. Jesus needed no forgiveness of sins. Jesus was the source of life himself. We need forgiveness of sins. We symbolize it in baptism. Uh, so it seems perhaps that this might be a foreshadowing of Jesus' identification with his people on the cross. So on the cross, Jesus does become the sin of the world, as the Bible says. So it seems in the baptism of John, Jesus didn't need to repent, he didn't need forgiveness, but he's identifying with you and me, right? So just as I've done it, we should do it, right? He does it, we do it. We also have here in this passage uh, of the baptism of Jesus, the Trinity in action. We have Jesus, the Son, 
And it says when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So the Trinity is action. Jesus is baptized. The Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove, it says. And then a voice, evidently, of the Father comes out of heaven. You're my beloved Son. With you I'm well pleased. So we do have Father, Son, and Holy Ghost here in this story of the baptism of Jesus by John. This was also a sign for John uh, that the, God had told John that the one upon whom you see the Spirit descending, this is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. So John knows this. This passage here, as Jesus is baptized and the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus and the Father speaks about Jesus, this is not adoptionism, if you're not familiar with this. Adoptionism is an ancient heresy. It's still with us today. Uh, there have been some recent, recent TV preachers who have preached this. Uh, adoptionism says that at some point in time, Jesus becomes the Son of God. That would be adoptionism. So a person might say, when Jesus was baptized, he became the Son of God. Or when he was on the cross, he became the Son of God. In other words, God adopts him. It's sometimes, this is wrong. This is, so this is not adoptionism. This is simply Christ doing what the Father called him to do, being obedient and participating in the baptism of John as the Father had instructed him. He reveals himself to Israel in this way as the coming Messiah. Verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Well, let's stop there. God now desires, the Father now desires that Jesus be tested and proved and strengthened as He continues His public ministry so the Holy Spirit, some versions say, mine says, drives him out into the desert. Uh, is this to have a good time, uh, to have a fiesta? No, it's to confront the devil and uh, undergo massive temptations and to overcome the temptations in the spirit world as he becomes our Savior. So the Holy Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness to do this. This life in the desert was God's idea. John Chrysostom wrote, but the Spirit drove him into the wilderness because he designed to provoke the devil to tempt him and thus gave him an opportunity not only by hunger but also by the place. For then, most of all, does the devil thrust himself in when he sees men remaining solitary. Isn't that the truth? <laughs> When we're by ourselves, well, it's easy for temptation to come in. Verse 13. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering unto him. The number 40 is interesting, right? Moses was in the wilderness for 40 days. The children of Israel journeyed in Sinai for 40 years. Jesus is in the wilderness here for 40 days. Evidently, it's a number of testing and a number of trial. Those 40s, 40 days. So, in the case of our Lord, 
as his 40 days in the wilderness, we have both physical and emotional endurance. He didn't eat anything. How can a person live that long? People have done it. Uh, so his body is weak. He's also emotionally tested, right? Think about it. Living 40 days out in a rock desert. There's nobody around. That's hard. You know, I mean, being by yourself a long time sometimes is hard. Uh, how am I going to entertain myself? Well, maybe I could watch TV. Maybe I could do a crossword puzzle. Who knows? I mean, I'm trying to find something to do, right? It's hard. Jesus is out here by himself for 40 days. Um, and, as we don't have it in this passage, but as you know from other places in Scripture, um, Jesus is tempted by the devil. So this extreme situation that Christ was in becomes the devil's opportunity. The order of temptations in Luke is as follows. The temptation of the bread. Then Satan says, fall down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. And then Satan makes the clever proposition, why don't you just jump off the pinnacle of the temple? Uh, the angels will bear you up. Temptation number one. If you are the Son of God, command this, these stones to become bread. And Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Bread, then, it seems, that the devil was tempting Christ to use his miraculous powers for personal benefit or to concentrate on your bodily needs to exclusion of all else. Oh, my body, my body, my body, right? I'm sick. What can I do? I don't know. So the devil wants him to concentrate on that rather than the Father. Christ passes that test. When people get tired of simply satisfying their bodily needs, perhaps it's ground for repentance and receiving the Lord. I had an experience one time. It's been decades ago. In the country of Bolivia... I was getting a haircut. I always like to get a haircut when I go down there because it's a lot cheaper, right? So I get my haircut. And uh, anyway, I was getting my haircut by this Bolivian barber and we were talking about things. I don't know why he brought this up. He out of the blue. He said, I'm tired of living like an animal. I'm listening. I'm tired of just working and making enough to eat and feeding my face. I'm tired of it. What shall, what, what shall I say? <laughs> I said, well, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And I left it at that. What else? God's working on this guy, you know. He's sick of, of all this stuff, you know. He needs spiritual life. He needs something else. So, Jesus did not use his miraculous powers for his own personal benefit or even to satisfy his hunger. Temptation number two, the devil says, fall down and worship me, uh, and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. If you will worship me, all this will be yours. And he's speaking of all these miraculous kingdoms in the world. This was a true offer, incidentally, by the devil. This wasn't a phony offer. God has given the devil to be the prince of this world, as the Bible says. So all this amazing world system all the money, all the politics, all the technology. There is a God over all this. 
his name is the devil. Of course, there's a great God over that, that inferior God, and we know that. So this was a true offer. Uh, the devil offers it to him. To which Jesus responds, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. I think this has a double meaning. To the devil, you shall worship the Lord your God only. To himself and us, as it were, we shall worship the Lord God only. And him only shall we serve. Temptation number two. Temptation number three. The devil says, well, why don't you just jump off the temple? And the devil quotes a scripture as as temptation here. The devil quotes, angels will bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. This is from the Psalms. This would be, this jumping off the temple and having angels bear you up, this would be gaining fame and adoration through super spirituality or super faith or perhaps through magician's tricks. I have seen a magician on TV. Craig says that's how they do it. I mean, it's TV, right? I have seen a magician on TV. His name was Chris Angel. Some of you have seen him. He was about... Ten stories up in the lobby of a hotel. And it has one of those big open areas in there. And he jumps over the rail from ten stories up. And he floats to the ground and lands on the ground. Now if a magician can do it, right? I mean, uh, so Christ doesn't fall for this. Just being a magician, no. Christ is not a magician. He's God, (laughs) not a magician. So Christ refuses this test of super spirituality and awing the public through these amazing powers and so forth. Christ refuses this. And he prefers to tread on the head of the snake as predicted in Scripture from the very passage that the devil is using, namely Psalm 91, verses 11 through 13, which I read. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Isn't that interesting? Right in that passage, the next line says, guess what, you're going to crush the head of the devil, which Christ does. So Jesus doesn't succumb to any of these temptations in the desert. Christ conquers, therefore, our three great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. He conquers at the level of our bodily needs. He conquers at the level of fame and acclaim that we seek. And he conquers at the level of super spirituality. Super spirituality. I'm more spiritual than you. Look at the miracles I can do. He conquers at that level. right? Now, Christ is coming up out of the desert with all of his loving wild animals and ministering angels. In a certain sense, the desert has been converted into paradise. Christ is like Adam in the Garden of Eden here. As the Apostle tells us, Christ is the last or the second Adam. All creation is subject to him. And where Christ is, there is glory Christ comes up out of the desert in power and glory and we come out with Him. The Scripture speaks of this event in a rather exact way in the Song of Solomon. 
We read Solomon, namely, as a type of Christ, and we read the bride as a type of the believer, or perhaps the church. I'm going to close with these three passages from the Song of Solomon that describe this event, and then we'll, we'll close. In the first and third readings that I do, there's that word midbar again that we said, which means desert. In the second passage that I'll read, the word must be translated mouth. It, it has to be, otherwise it won't make any sense. I mean, I've looked in the Hebrew dictionaries and lexicons and all this. This is the only occurrence of this translation that I see for this particular word, but there it is. So let's read these passages, and I'll, I'll just read these from the King James Version, please. The first one is Song of Solomon, chapter 3, verse 8, which says, Who is this coming up out of the desert like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the powders of the merchant? Behold his bed, which is Solomon's. Threescore valiant men are about it, of the valiant of Israel. They all hold swords, being expert in war. Every man hath his sword upon his thigh because of fear in the night. So, Solomon comes up out of the desert. This is the place of the encounter with God or the place of communion with God. The smoke and the myrrh and the frankincense indicate glory. So Christ comes up in glory out of the desert. Sixty powerful soldiers surround him. Uh, or like the angels in the passage we just read in Mark that are ministering to him, these powerful ones. The second reading is from chapter 7, verse 9 of Psalm, which says, uh, as the husband is talking to the wife, the roof of thy mouth is like the best wine for my beloved that goeth down sweetly, causing the lips of those who are asleep to speak. And there's that little word midbar again there that translates as the mouth of the wife. It's the place of speech. So, the scripture says, the roof of that place of your speech is like the best wine for Christ, for my beloved, that goes down sweetly, causing the lips of those that are asleep to speak. This wife of Christ, this believer, has been so trained in terms of her speech that she is literally raising the dead, causing the lips of those that are asleep to speak. What does this mean? It means that at, through our speech, other people are actually coming to Christ. Guess what? Other people believe in Christ. You're not the only believer in the world. And through your influence and through your talk, guess what? People are being born again. They're being raised from the dead. And the third reading is, is who is this coming up out of the desert leaning upon her beloved so the bride then also comes out of the desert with her beloved she participates in his glory in his victory over the devil in his making all things new again how does she do it by leaning on her beloved that's how she does it you know <clears throat> I'm not as smart as I think I am. I need to lean on Christ to be able to do anything. So, application. 
here we are. We're coming up out of the desert with Christ. I don't know what your personal desert is. <clears throat> the desert's a place of desolation. It could be an emotional desert. You're messed up in some way or another. It could be an isolation desert. Where are the people? I'm by myself. It could be sickness. It could be a lot of things where we don't really have any human help that much. We come up out of the desert by leaning on Christ. That's the only way. And as we come out of the desert, therefore, the victory is not hers, but His. She overcomes the devil through Christ. Her speech is marvelous, not because she is so great, but because of Him. Her wisdom is astounding because out in the desert, the beloved opened up for her a fountain of wisdom and of joy and of eternal life. So may the Lord bless these words into your hearing. Amen.